Well, good morning. I am certainly thankful to be back. We enjoy the time away but and be refreshed, but it's always a joy to be back home. Um, I am grateful to Tyler for covering for me last week. I think highly of him and his family, and it sounds like it was a good time. Um, so I'm glad you guys got to spend some time with him and their family, and even after church on Sunday as well. Um, so I come to this week, I hate to say it's busy because everybody is busy. We all have different things going on. We're just busy in different ways. And I had myself set up pretty well this week, and things have just kind of overtaken me in unexpected ways. Um, and yet, I am excited to go to God's Word. And so this morning, I want to continue from where we left off two weeks ago, and I want to invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Colossians. Colossians chapter 2, and I want to bring the message that I have titled, The Sufficient Christ for the Insufficient Christian. And as you are there, I'm going to ask those of you who are able to please stand for the reading of God's word. Colossians chapter 2, and I'm going to begin in verse 6. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him, who is the head of all rule and authority. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of the debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. You may be seated. C.S. Lewis laments, in view of the unblushing promises of rewards and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, our Lord finds our desire not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling around with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. He goes on to say, like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at sea, we are far too easily pleased. While some of us may not be able to relate to the examples that he offers us, certainly C.S. Lewis is correct in his meaning. We are far too easily pleased. We settle ourselves to be content with things of the world when really the offer of Christ's world stands before us. 
We're unable to make the distinction between the exceptional and the excellent with what is really mundane and mediocre. This past week, Bethany and I took a vacation, and I wasn't going to share some of the details, but they fit very well here. People often asked, why did we go where we went? And the reason I give is food. And most people will laugh at that because I think they underestimate my level of love for food. <laughs> um, 1 Corinthians 10.31 says, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it for the glory of God. I'm just simply glorifying God. That's my excuse. My weight should tell you that indeed I love my food. This week we took no pictures of ourselves. But if you look at our phones, there's like 40 or 50 of our food. And I'm not lying. I did that more so that I could remember what I ate. But I bring this out because indeed I do love good food. I enjoy a meal where I can sit there for hours and simply just appreciate what's being served. Our longest meal this week took three hours. I enjoyed it because we savored every bite. I share that because food brings me some sort of momentary happiness. I will give up a lot in order to enjoy a good meal. But it is just that, temporary. Our longest meal, like I said, lasted three hours, and then what? It was gone. We had a few lingering effects where I could remember it. I have the pictures now that I can reflect on it. And even some of the taste still resonates with me. But ultimately, that was a fleeting moment. The point is that, as C.S. Lewis pointed out here, we are far too easily pleased. And even I stand convicted by that point. Much of what we find great pleasures in, indeed, are only temporary. They do not endure. They do not provide lasting fulfillment. Only God and the things of God can fulfill such a task and such a need. And so this morning I bring you to our text in Colossians, calling upon each of us to find satisfaction in Christ, not gratification in the culture. As Paul writes to the Colossians here, he warns them about being captive, not just to anything, but specifically here he refers to the philosophy of the world at that time, capturing them, literally taking them captive. And so he calls upon them to set aside contentment in philosophy and instead find it in Christ. And so I want to remind you where we left off two weeks ago with the first point of reprimand, the reprimand found in verse 8. With the weight of authority, Paul warns the Colossians, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. To the Ephesians in Acts chapter 20, Paul warns about fierce wolves. To the Philippians, he warns them about looking out for the dogs, for the evildoers. That's his exact words there. Such warnings are spread across scripture, varying by audience and author. But they always call attention not only to the prevalence of false teaching, but the need for believers to stand up or be ready or be on guard against false teaching. 
It is a reminder that we must be wary of the teaching going on, always testing it against the word of God. Paul begins by calling the teaching here a philosophy, much like we see individuals and groups today conform to the culture around them to be trendy, to trying to appeal to the masses. That is what's taking place in our text. There is this new philosophy coming forth, and every new religion sought to be called a philosophy, which was really just an elaborate system of thought in their day, because that was what was considered fashionable and popular. Yet any philosophy, as I said, was only as valuable in as much as it conforms to the truth of God. And as we've discussed, the false teaching here took on an early form of Gnosticism, Although it wasn't fully developed at the time that Paul writes, that would come later on in the the second century, we see here that it's starting to take form. And what we see is the false teachers appealing to special knowledge, claiming that their knowledge was attained by special revelation. Paul explains, though, that their special knowledge is not obtained by special revelation. Because what it does is weighs the traditions of man more heavily than it does the truth of God. We see that in our text. This is not uncommon behavior. Most people are more concerned about their traditions than they are anything else. And they will elevate those traditions to greater status than they will elevate the truth of God. We see this in Mark 7. I read that to you two weeks ago because it was there that the greatest fault found in Christ at that time, what Christ was accused of, was not of violating God's law, but of violating man's tradition. That's what the Pharisees were upset about. But not only is this philosophy man-made, the traditions of man, it says, but it is man-orchestrated. It says it's consisting of nothing but the elementary spirits of the world. Remember that that term, that phrase in Colossians 2.8 calls to mind things like learning the alphabet or the order of numbers, things we learned in elementary school. In contrast to the weighty matters of God, the philosophy being propagated here is nothing but elementary principles. In Galatians chapter 4, Paul exclaims that this this is who believers are in their previous life before they are found in Christ. He writes, in the same way we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. And so his warning calls us to take heart and take attention and be on guard. Be ready for those who will deceive And so I want you to note second what I called the rationale for Paul's reprimand. In verse 8, we have the reprimand, and in verses 9 and 10, we have the reason for that reprimand. The word of God reads, For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him, who is the head of all rule and authority. In verse 8, Paul issues a warning telling the Colossians to to see to it that no one deceives them with this philosophy. Because instead, what they have here is Christ. Far more important than the empty deceit of man's philosophy is the fullness of deity of Christ's person. Without getting too complicated, we, we need to understand a basic 
belief about the philosophy that's being propagated here in Colossians. They would believe that Jesus Christ was not God at all, but only an emanation from God, that he was like an angel or another being that God had created. And the belief was that the nearer one was to God, the greater that emanation had share in God's divinity. And so the further you got away from God, the less share you had in that fullness of nature. But Paul's teaching here is meant to counteract that belief because he's proclaiming that no, Christ is the fullness of God. He doesn't have a share of God's divinity. He has all of God's divinity. He is God. He's already defended this in chapter 1, verse 19 saying, for in him all fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Two Greek words make this text very exceptional. First, saying that it is God the Father's deity in Christ, that it is the Lord's essence, his attributes. Everything, his all-being is found in Christ. In fullness, all that God is, Christ is also. Moreover, it says that the fullness of deity dwells like a home, like a dwelling. Christ is the dwelling place of the deity of God. That is to say that it is comfortable and it is content to dwell there. The term also signifies permanence, meaning that deity will never depart Christ. He is fully God and will always be fully God. Nothing has been spared, nothing has been forgotten, and nothing has been left out. If you want to know God, you only need to know Christ. This is a text calling on believers not to be captivated by the empty philosophies, but to be captivated by the fullness of God. To understand life, we must understand God. There is no need for us to supplement with other philosophies or with other religions or even other, other ideologies. They don't even have to be formal philosophy, but ideologies of the world. J.I. Packer writes, We are cruel to ourselves if we try to live in this world without knowing about the God whose world it is and who runs it. The world becomes a strange, mad, painful place, and life in it a disappointing and unpleasant business for those who do not know about God. He says further, disregard the study of God, and you sentence yourself to stumble and blunder through life, blindfolded, as it were, with no sense of direction and no understanding of what surrounds you. This way you can waste your life and lose your soul. Paul goes on, though, and he adds encouragement to the Colossian believers. And not only is it that Christ has been filled with divinity, But then he says in our text that the people, the believers, have been filled with Christ. Notice the past perfect tense of that verb. Have been filled. Not only is it past tense indicating that it has already happened, they were already filled, but then we have this perfect tense, which indicates that the effect of that being filled is still occurring today. It continues on At salvation, a person is filled with the fullness. 
They are still filled with the fullness, and they will always be filled with the fullness of God. So how is it that one is fulfilled or filled with the fullness of Christ? By knowing the love of Christ. It says in Ephesians 3.19, To know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. That is to know the sacrificial love of Christ on the cross, accepting his death and burial and resurrection, and acknowledging that as sufficient satisfaction of God's judgment against sin. John expands on this. He says, from his fullness, we've all received grace upon grace. John 1.16. In Christ, then, Believers have found the source of all things. He who is the head over every ruler and over every authority, and they found sufficiency in him. And so in him, a believer finds fullness and is made complete. The word there conveys a ship, a ship that has been fitted with everything necessary for a voyage. All the supplies, all the food have been filled on the the ship. All the parts are ready there if they need to make repairs. The crew is ready and equipped to fulfill their roles and their tasks. They lack nothing that is necessary to complete the voyage. And they are ready to set sail and encounter whatever may be presented to them. And so it is with the Colossians. Being made full in Christ, they are ready to encounter whatever may come to them. And so it should be with every Christian. One who is, who is in Christ has everything necessary for life. And so we could say, let the one who is anxious trust in Christ. Let the one who is prideful find humility in Christ. Let the one who is entrenched in the habits of sin be freed by Christ. How foolish it is that we seek support and affirmation and knowledge and assurance from rules and regulations and rights in this world when all that is necessary for life is found in the fullness of Christ, which is already found in those who are believers. And so the reason for the reprimand is that they have no need for philosophy. They have the fullness of Christ. I want you to note third, the regeneration or the redemption of verses 11 and 12. Read with me the text as it states, In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh, by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. How is it that one experiences the fullness of Christ in the previous verses? By experiencing regeneration in Christ. Paul gives the Colossians two pictures to explain who they are in Christ. In him, they were circumcised. And in him, they were buried and raised in baptism. The first circumcision is established in the Old Testament, while the New Testament equivalent, baptism, is established by Christ's own example. Each of these, I would tell you, has both a physical and a spiritual element. 
or a symbolic act, we could say. So we begin by looking first at circumcision. He says, in him, Christ, you were circumcised. This act comes to light in Genesis 17, as the Lord establishes his covenant with Abraham. He tells Abraham, I will make you a, a faithful, or make you fruitful. Many nations will come from your lineage. And he tells him, instead of living as perpetual sojourners, I will give you a land in which you can find a permanent dwelling place. And then in Genesis 17, verses 9 and 10, we come to this. And God said to Abraham, As for you, you shall keep my covenant. You and your offspring, after you, after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant. You shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. And so here we have our introduction to circumcision. According to the law in Leviticus chapter 12, specifically in verses 2 and 3, we are told that a, a Jewish boy is circumcised on the eighth day after his birth. This is a physical act to picture the removal of God's sin. One commentator describes it this way. The body of the flesh is subject to the effects of sin and must be stripped away. The graphic nature of this symbol should tell us the graphic nature of sin and the explicit manner necessary to remove it. Circumcision would eventually become a point of contention in the New Testament church. As the Jews mixed with the Gentiles, it became part of the discussion of how one must be saved. Was circumcision necessary? Indeed, it was discussed about at the Jerusalem Council in Acts, 8, Acts 15. It was shortly after that council that Paul would write to the Galatians, though. And in chapter 5, he writes this stunning defense of why it's not necessary to be physically circumcised. And so while the Judaizers claimed that physical circumcision was necessary for salvation, Paul proclaims otherwise, because he'd just come from Jerusalem. He'd just been part of that debate. In fact, we could say in his defense that Paul really indicates that the work of circumcision acts against the work of Christ. He says in, in Galatians 5.2, Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. He then goes on in verse 3 and says, I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. If you're going to keep one part of the law, then you're required to keep all of it. Just as if you're guilty under one part, a person is guilty under it all. The basis for continuing circumcision here, according to the Judaizers, was really just an argument of legalism. In other words, it was what? The traditions of men, which Paul just argued against in verse 8. But from verses 1 through 12 in Galatians 5, he argues that the antithesis to this is Christ. While the Judaizers argue for the continuation of the Mosaic law, Paul is counteracting that, saying, no, Christ is the fulfillment of that law. In light of this circumcision, in light of this, circumcision doesn't lose its value, surprisingly. 
In fact, the value doesn't even change. I would tell you it's strengthened by the work of Christ. In the same way that he warns against false teaching to the Colossians and explains this relationship with circumcision, he does the same thing to the Philippians. Consider chapter 3 of Philippians. Verse 2, he issues this warning, Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. In this verse, Paul issues a play on words. And while the word for circumcision means to cut around, Paul uses the word mutilated, which means to cut down. Essentially, he's saying that this physical act of circumcision does not have any physical value except to mutilate the flesh. Then he says in verse 3, he explains it further. For we are the circumcision. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and the glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. We, being believers, are the circumcision. That is, that we have been stripped of sin. As a physical act was a picture to remove sin, spiritually the work of Christ has removed sin from our lives. Remember our text in Colossians 2.11, because it is there that Paul not only writes that they've been circumcised, but then he says it is a circumcision made without hands by the circumcision of Christ. Literally, it's unhand made. To understand this text, we, we look at Romans chapter 2, and I'm not going to read it all, but if you want further reading after you leave here, I would tell you to read chapter 2, specifically verses 1 through 17. Or sorry, after 17. For the time, though, I want to look at the last two verses of that chapter. And Paul expands on this concept, saying this, For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. This circumcision that he's preaching is a circumcision without hands, one that is of the heart. The outward act has no value if there's no inward transformation. It's not a new concept. This doesn't show up in the New Testament. It didn't change between the Old Testament and the New Testament. Deuteronomy 10, Jeremiah 6, and Ezekiel 44 all discuss this concept. And those are only a few passages. Deuteronomy chapter 30. We come to a point when Israel has rejected God. And through the words of Moses, they are called upon to repent and to return to the Lord. Verse 2, it, it calls them to repentance. In verse 3 through 5, it says the Lord will restore them and bring them into the land. And what will be the sign of their return to the Lord? Deuteronomy 36, 30, verse 6, says, And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring. The Lord will circumcise their heart. And then it says they will love the Lord their God, and they will obey him. Notice again the connection between the inward and the outward. We often think of circumcision as, of the heart as a New Testament concept. 
inaugurated by Christ, but simply it's just a continuation of the Old Testament. God worked in the same way then as he does now. The difference now is we now have God revealed in Christ. God never changed the spiritual act, but he did change the physical act. In the Old Testament, the outward sign of identifying God's covenant was this circumcision. Today, that outward act, according to our text, is baptism. Verse 13 in our primary text in Colossians captures this saying, Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead. In the same way that circumcision is the outward expression of an inward alliance with God, baptism is the outward expression of an inward alliance with God. Baptism comes to us by Christ's own example. Later on, it's established as one of the two ordinances of the church. The other one we'll be celebrating today. The language of this verse makes the symbolism incredibly clear. There is no doubt about the significance of baptism. As Christ was buried and raised again, the believer too in baptism is buried and raised again. Participation in baptism signified both identification with Christ and inclusion in the church. It's described further in Romans 6, 3 through 4. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus, were baptized into his death. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into into death, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead, by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Baptism is the outward counterpart of an inward change, simply conveying the cleansing power of Christ's blood and spirit. I want you to note finally the repercussions, the consequences that are displayed in verses 13 through 15. Those verses read, And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses, by canceling the record of the debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. I want to close out quickly here by simply bringing your attention to three things that God did in that act of regeneration. Three things that we see here. First, it says, those who were once dead are made alive. Just as Christ was once dead, so too the Colossians were once dead, at least spiritually speaking. Just as any person before Christ is dead in their sins. This action is well described in Ephesians chapter 2. The chapter of Ephesians 2 begins by calling attention to their state. It says, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. And then if you jump to verse 4, it says, But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. 
Notice something very extraordinary about that work. Consider what that text says in Ephesians. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, God made us alive. First off, this is wholly an act of God, completely an act of God. Before any person could ever come to Christ, God took the initiative. While they were still dead, still unbelievers, still sinners, it says, God made them alive, and more importantly, both here and in the text in Colossians, it says they are made alive together with Christ. They're not made alive in anything, by anything, but in Christ. The act of being made alive is followed by another extraordinary act in Colossians 2, 13 and 14. It says that God has forgiven all trespasses. Despite the severity of sin, God forgives. Moreover, God willfully forgives. He's not obligated to do it. He is not compelled to do it. He does so only because his disposition is to do so. And I don't think I need to describe for you the significance of that event. Paul already does that for you in verse 14. He says, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. Literally, that record there means a handwritten document listing every single trespass against the law. We learn from Romans 7 that indeed the law is holy and just and good because it reveals the moral law. And it also manifests God's goodness. And yet, so strict is that law, it is impossible to maintain without a circumcised heart. If you want an interesting study, go take a look at the fall in Genesis 3. And pay attention there to how Adam broke every single one of the Ten Commandments, which were not even formalized until later. And all he did was take a bite of a piece of fruit. Against all those legal demands stands a person's record of debt. But this says the Lord has canceled it. He has wiped it out so that it no longer stands as a witness against us as individuals. And if that wasn't enough, the description goes further. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. We likely all know that upon crucifixion, the crimes of a criminal were nailed to the cross as evidence of what that person was charged with. We remember this in John chapter 19 or Matthew chapter 27. Nailed to the cross of Christ was his claim to divinity, king of the Jews. Those crucified with him also had their sins or their trespasses nailed to their crosses. But our crimes were never nailed to our cross. They were permanently taken away, never to be revived again, as it says here. And they were nailed to the cross of Christ. The sign placed below Christ to list his crimes were not his own. They were mine and yours. What would yours say? As you think about this, though, Remember that those who have been regenerated, those who have been circumcised in the heart, that debt no longer stands. Indeed, it says in verse 14, he set it aside, 
as I just told you, that phrase implies permanence. They will never be revived again. God writes through the author of Hebrews, I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. And then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. The third repercussion we see is found in verse 15. It says, He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. I've not talked much about this since we began our study in Colossians, but part of the teaching that Paul writes against, the false teaching that Paul writes against, is that many were elevating the roles of angels. In Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 20, we have this tremendous exaltation of Christ. In verse 16 of that passage, Paul refers to the thrones and dominions and principalities. It is understood by most that that refers to the angelic beings that God has put into place. Purposefully, what Paul is doing there is elevating Christ to a position greater than the angel's. He's showcasing that the angels were created beings. In fact, they were created by Christ. Hebrews does the same thing. So most people understand then, based on the context of Colossians, and looking at this verse, these rulers and authorities in our text are referring to the dominions of angels. But why would God want to put them to shame? Because what is the conflict between good and evil? In between him and fallen angels, between good and evil, is simply this. You have God and then you have Satan, those who stood against God. They sought to displace God by leading others astray, walking them into sin, making them guilty before the Lord. And yet we have here that the Lord has triumphed over them. By the work of Christ, that record of sin is eradicated. And now our Lord has disarmed Satan. In fact, it says he not only triumphs, but he puts them to open shame. The only time that word shame is used in the New Testament is here. And literally it reminds us of the Romans when they paraded their captors before the public, exposing them to public view. That is what God does when he conquers Satan. And notice it's past tense. There's certainly still a battle raging on, but the finish is already determined. It's already happened in one sense. God will overcome. As we draw to a close, I want us to think about a final point. Some of my time this week was spent thinking and studying about the eternal nature of God. God is eternal. He exists outside of time, having no beginning, having no end. God always was, is, and is to come. I want to think you to think about these verses then, in light of God's eternal nature. To the believer, these verses should be comforting. To the unbeliever, they should strike fear into your heart. For the believer, we look at the promises laid out. Believers have been filled with him. 
They are circumcised, with a circumcision made without hands. They have been made alive. They have been forgiven. Their record of debt is canceled. And the Lord has triumphed over evil. If God is eternal, then the consequences of those are eternal as well. If we served a God who was limited by time, having been born or having the possibility of death, none of these promises could ever stand for eternity. But because God is eternal, his forgiveness of our sins is also eternal. As we think about that, when it talks about being made alive, we can also be made alive eternally as well. For the unbeliever, though, this also means the Lord's judgment is eternal. For those who do not have eternal forgiveness, they have eternal separation, eternal damnation. Notice that the Lord triumphed over evil, disarming rulers and authorities. He does so forever and completely. And so it is with the unrepentant sinner who does not turn to Christ. Stephen Sharnock writes, How dreadful is it to lie under the stroke of an eternal God. His eternity is as great a terror to him that hates him as it is a comfort to him that loves him. Because he is a living God, an everlasting king, the nation shall not be able to abide his indignation. I want you to examine those texts in, in light of God's eternal nature. Paul began our section in Colossians in chapter 8 by warning them, do not be take, taken captive by the philosophy. This philosophy is empty and hollow. It's unable to offer anything to a person. But then he concludes this section with this. In contrast to that empty philosophy is the fullness of Christ who is a fullness of deity, able to offer life and forgiveness and triumph over evil. No philosophy can offer anything similar. Only life at Christ, in Christ can do that. Forget the human tradition and the elemental spirits, all of which may be man's wisdom, but God's foolishness. And instead, we must turn to Christ, who offers much more because he is the wisdom of God. To quote Matthew Barrett, we are spiritually nearsighted. Seduced by the pleasures of this world, we fail to see past immediate gratification to the eternal pleasure found in the infinite one himself. I pray that we are not a people misled by the systems of the world, but a people led by the Son of God. Let us not be distracted by temporal gratification in the world. Instead, let us be delighted by eternal satisfaction. In Christ. Let's pray. Father God, indeed, you are the eternal God. And Father, we give you great praise for your, your nature, Lord, your eternal nature. And because you are an eternal God, Lord, we can have eternal life. Father, I pray that we would not be deceived by the philosophies of this world. I pray that we would not even be deceived by the philosophies of self, that we wouldn't come up with our own ideas, but Lord, I pray that instead we would find the fullness in Christ. Help us to live a life in that fullness. 
Father, may our heart be circumcised. And may that be reflected in our life's activities, Lord. We're grateful that you offer this by the work of your son, Christ. By his death, burial, and resurrection. That at that time, you nailed our sins to his cross, Lord. And so, Father, I pray that we would walk away today convicted by who you are and committed to who you are. We thank you for this time together and committing it all to you. In your holy and precious name we pray. Amen.